And Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you all. Thank you so much for joining us this morning in worship. That's the wrong passage. Give me one sec here. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of your son, uh, the son of David, the son who would become Lord of all. So God, this morning we pray that you would help us to behold him, to see him in all of his goodness as we read this passage about him. Uh, Lord, may your spirit who inspired these words apply them to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Well, friends, Christmas is finally here, uh, or I guess tomorrow it will finally be here. Now, hopefully everyone has, has finished their Christmas shopping and presents are now wrapped and under the tree. Uh, if not, I heard that Target is open till 8 tonight, so there is still just a little bit of hope for you. Uh, but I wanted to start off this morning with a little bit of trivia. Can you guess an item that has been one of the most popular children's toys uh, since it was first marketed to children in the 1950s? Well, I'm not asking for responses. The answer is Play-Doh. Now, fun fact about Play-Doh, though, it became a kid's toy by accident. See, the substance that we now call Play-Doh was, was around for a few decades before the 1950s, when, again, it was marketed to children for the first time. And before that time, it was used exclusively as a wallpaper cleaner. Apparently, the soft, pliable compound was excellent at wiping up soot in particular. But when homes in the U.S. and elsewhere transitioned from being heated by coal to gas and electricity, sooty buildup on wallpaper was no longer an issue. And Cut-All Products, the largest wallpaper cleaner manufacturer in the world, was in danger of going out of business. Well, Joseph, Mc, Joseph McVicker, then CEO, was trying to turn around his struggling company when, her, when his sister-in-law read an article about how wallpaper cleaner could be used for modeling projects. McVicker's sister-in-law, Kay Zufall, was a nursery school teacher, and she tested the non-toxic material with children. Hopefully, she knew that it was non-toxic before she tested it with children. But she tested it in her class, and the children loved it. Uh, they loved molding it into all kinds of different shapes, and she told McVicker of her discovery, and she, and she suggested, let's sell this stuff to kids. And she, she suggested even a new name for it, Play-Doh. Play-Doh. Well, according to Fortune magazine, Play-Doh has sold more than three billion cans since its, debu since its debut as a child's toy in 1956, which equates to more than 700 million pounds of Play-Doh. And according to Hasbro, the company that now owns Play-Doh, if you took all of the Play-Doh compound created since 1956 and put it through the Play-Doh Fun Factory playset, maybe they're trying to sell you something there, you could make a snake that would wrap around the world 300 times. <laughs> that is a lot of Play-Doh, especially given the fact that its existence was pretty much an accident. A change of plans that the people involved weren't wanting or expecting. Well, in our text this morning, 
we encounter a change of plans that while unexpected and perhaps unwanted, led to a result that was far better than anyone could have asked or imagined. So before we dig into this text, I want to ask you, are there, are there any plans that you are clinging to right now? Ideas of, of the way things ought to be or things that you need in order for life to work, in order for things to be good? Do you have hopes for the new year that you're not really willing to budge on? Keep those things in mind as we walk through this text together. I want us to read through this narrative um, again together and and we'll look at it in three parts or three phases. Uh, First, we have David's plan. Second, God's response. And finally, God's plan. So we're gonna go ahead and take a look at each phase in turn. And we're gonna begin by looking together at David's plan. What we read about David's plan in verses one through three of our text. There we read, when, when the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that is on your mind for the Lord is with you. So what was David's plan? Well, he wanted to build a house or a temple for the Lord. He came about this course of action when he looked at his own house, or his own dwelling, and felt rightfully that, that the place where he lived shouldn't outshine where the place where God lived. Now notice he wanted to bring God up instead of lowering himself, but that's, that's perhaps another topic. Why should his dwelling, he's asking himself, why should his dwelling have more beauty and permanence than God's dwelling? Why should he live in a house of cedar when the ark of God, where God dwelt in a, in a particular and special way, was in a tent? God was in the tabernacle, which again was essentially a tent. God was camping, because camping is intense. And it's worth noting here that a house of cedar was no small thing. It was a sign of great prosperity because cedar was beautiful, it was fragrant, and it was expensive. Uh, my wife and I first uh, got acquainted with cedar when we moved from Southern California to Boston for a couple of years. Um, see, we, we moved there with clothes made primarily of cotton or canvas, things that were light and breathable. That doesn't really work super well in Boston. So we had to acquire like real clothes that would keep us warm in the real winter. Um, so we ended up getting a whole lot of wool. Well, wool is great for keeping humans warm, but it's also apparently great for moths to eat. So we learned a little trick while we were there. If you buy like little cedar panels, then it keeps the moths away. Um, So we we did, we bought a bunch of cedar panels and we put them in closets and in drawers and and it worked wonders. And I I loved it because uh, it offered this like beautiful fragrance. So it made all of your clothes smell like wood, which you you can buy cologne to make yourself smell like wood. Um, This was a cheaper way of going about it. And those were just from these little panels. Imagine a a whole home constructed out of this sturdy, fragrant, beautiful material. Well, that is what David was currently experiencing. And that is what he wanted God to experience as well. So David, seemingly with good intentions, constructs a plan to build a house for God. 
Now, it's not as though David wouldn't receive some honor and praise for erecting a temple for God, right? As long as the temple stood, people would be reminded of God as well as the man who constructed it. But even still, it seemed like a good plan. And it was supported by the prophet Nathan, a man who was not afraid to tell David off when he thought David was out of line. So that's David's plan. I'm going to build a temple for the Lord, a good plan, a plan supported by God's man, Nathan. But what does God have to say about David's plan? Well, let's now go ahead and take a look at God's response, starting in verse 4. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? God looks at, oh, there's the text, sorry about that. God looks at David's good and honorable plan and basically just says, no, no. God never asked David to build him a house, and he certainly didn't need one. And why does God reject David's plan? Well, 1 Chronicles 2.28 sheds some light on God's decision where, where David reveals a word that he received from God. There we read, you are not to build a house for my name because you have shed so much blood on the ground before me. See, David was a man of war, and the peace that we read about in the early verses of our text in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 1, that was a hard-fought peace. Now, I don't think, though, that it was the fighting in and of itself that was the sole issue or perhaps even the primary issue. What was it then? See, David, while potentially well-intentioned, was falling into a common practice in the ancient Near East. See, it was common for successful kings at that time and place, and a king was was usually judged successful if they won a lot of battles. It was common for a successful king at that time and place to build a large temple for the God of their choosing. We have archaeological uh, records verifying this, examples going back to the third millennium BC among the Sumerians, and examples that continue down into Assyrian, Babylonian, and even Persian times. The temple or home of God was expected to bring the protection of the deity to the king and his land. And a permanent, luxurious dwelling, like one made of cedar, would be intended to ensure the Lord's presence and favor. There are many examples of this practice, and David is about to do the same thing. So what does God say? Does he say, yes, good, right? All these false gods have these awesome temples. I want one that outshines them all. No, God says no. And he says no because he wants it to be abundantly clear that he is not like the other gods. And our text highlights how that is exactly the case in in, in a couple of ways. Uh, the first way that I think we see that highlighted in our text is, is in God's, incarn- God's willingness to enter into our circumstances. The God of the Bible is an incarnational God. Why was God in a tent? Because his people were. 
He wasn't going to establish himself in a permanent dwelling before most of his people were established themselves. And we see this truth about God come to fruition in Jesus. Jesus, we're told in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled. Jesus pitched his tent when he came to us on Christmas. He was, we're told in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, uh, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Again, Jesus enters into our circumstances. He, according to Paul in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of a shameful death on the cross. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he took them all on himself, as we see in Hebrews chapter 4. He even warns a would-be disciple. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. <laughs> Follow me if you want. This is what you're getting into. Right? Because the God of the Bible is a God of incarnation. He enters into our circumstances. Jesus, who is fully God, is given the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The God of the Bible is a God who wants to be with his people. So God rejects this plan at this time, I think partially on these grounds. But perhaps even more importantly, God rejects these plans because he wants to make it abundantly clear to David and to us that God relates to us, he relates to his people based on grace. If God allowed David to build a temple for him after winning many victories, and perhaps with the hope of securing more, he would be communicating to David, the people of Israel, and the rest of the world that he functioned like all of the other gods. See, all of the other religions at the time, and really all of the alternative religions to Christianity even today, function on the principle, you do for God, and God in turn will do for you. Call it karma or works righteousness or just good vibes, right? The idea is you get back what you put in. But God tells David and he tells us, no, that is not how I work. I am a God of grace. He is the God who looks at us in our sin and instead of rejecting us, takes on not only our weaknesses but the punishment that our sin deserves, Ultimately, the the manger points us to the cross, and the, the Apostle Paul gets to the heart of God's love and grace when he writes in Romans, Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God looks at David's plan and he completely upends it because he wants David and he wants us to know that he is a God of grace. He is the God who gives us what we don't deserve, who accepts us not based on our merits, but on his love. 
All right, so we saw David's plan. We saw God's response. So now let's take a look at God's alternative plan. In the following verses, we read, So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is God talking to Nathan. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have not, excuse me, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure for, before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, when we first read this text, you, you may not have thought this, but this passage is one of the most important passages in the books of Samuel and one of the key texts in the entire Hebrew Bible. And this text ultimately points to this day, this day when this promise would be fulfilled. The passage where God says no. God said no to David, to David's plan to build a house for him. But God said no not to discourage David, not to make him feel small or foolish, but because he had another greater plan in the works and to establish beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is a God of grace. He doesn't relate to us based on our strengths and abilities. Instead, he relates to us based on his love and grace and promise. Hey, friends, can you hear that as a word of comfort this morning? This is a season in which there is a lot of striving, a lot of working, a lot of preparing. And those are all good things. But if all of those things go away, you would still have the most important thing that any of us could want. And that is the assurance of God's love. God doesn't relate to us based on our strengths and abilities. Instead, he relates to us based on his love and grace and promise. In his commentary on this passage, Eugene Peterson explains, this message of God through Nathan to David is dominated by a recital of what God has done, is doing, and will do. God is the first person subject in 23 verbs in this message, and these verbs carry all the action, God's action. David, full of what he is about to do for God, is now subjected to a comprehensive re rehearsal of what God is doing for David. David wanted to build a house for God, but it was God's intention to build a house for David. And what does that mean? Well, the word house in Hebrew is flexible. It can refer to a physical dwelling, which is how David had been using it. 
but it can also refer to a dynasty. God wanted to establish a dynasty, a kingdom for David, one that would be established forever, a promise that no building could possibly fulfill. And we see this promise met in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews makes this connection when he quotes 2 Samuel 7, 14 in reference to Jesus. I will be his father and he will be my son. Something God didn't say about a mere angel. David had a plan. It was a good and honorable plan, but God had a better one. One that would provide for the salvation of the world. What was born to us on Christmas Day is no mere child, no mere angel. The idea that we see the writer of Hebrews combating in this verse. But the child born to us on Christmas Day was no mere prophet or good teacher. The child born in that manger was the fulfillment of the promise made to David a thousand years prior. It is God himself come down. God pitching his tent so that he might dwell among us. Jesus, the embodiment of grace and truth. And John goes on to say that in Jesus we have received grace upon grace. It's the dynasty come to life. It is the house that God built for David. So God called David to surrender, to say, not my will, but yours be done, so that God could do a work that was beyond his wildest imaginings. So think for a moment. What plans are you clinging to this Christmas? What ideas of the way things ought to be might God be calling you to surrender? Will you have the courage to say, not my will, but yours be done? It is hard giving up on our ideas of the ways that things should go. But I appreciate the example that David sets in the following verses. After having his plans completely upended, after God responds to him with kind of a stark no, we read in verse 18, Then King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence, and said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God, for you, you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. Because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. Eugene Peterson once again comments, David sits This may be the most critical act that David ever does, the action that puts him out of the action. By sitting down, David renounces royal initiative. He takes himself out of the driver's seat and deliberately places himself prayerfully before God the King. There's great danger in getting so caught up in our God plans that we'll forget all about God. When David sat down, the real action started. Not David making God a house, but God making David a house. Friends, may this Christmas be a time where you are able to sit, to sit before God and surrender to his will because it is way better 
than anything we could construct for ourselves. When you learn to surrender your plans, your will, your life to God, he is there. He will answer. Surrendering is a scary proposition. It's a scary proposition, but the God to whom we surrender is the God of David who fulfills promises, who scraps our plans for a measly house so that he might erect a dynasty, a dynasty able to bring salvation to the whole world. Friends, our God knows what is best. Christmas is evidence of that. So will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, this morning and this Christmas season, we ask that you would give us what we need to trust in you. Father, help us with David to sit to sit in your presence, to behold your goodness as it's been revealed throughout Scripture and ultimately as it was revealed in the gift of Jesus. Father, we pray that we would behold that gift together, that we would celebrate that gift with everything we have, that we'd see it as the evidence of your love and your grace that it is. Father, help us to surrender to you today and every day, Lord. It's in Jesus' great name we pray, amen.